This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. This is a highlights edition with excerpts from some podcast episodes that debuted in April, May, June, and July in 2021. We're beginning with an episode that uh, first uh, was on the internet starting April 30th of 2021, episode 368, The Trials of Burr and Trump. Does the second impeachment trial of President Donald Trump recall Aaron Burr's acquittal in an 1807 treason trial? New York City correspondent Jim Kaplan tells the life of Revolutionary War hero and Vice President Aaron Burr, a controversial figure in American history, perhaps best remembered for killing founding father Alexander Hamilton in a duel. But Burr, years later, was tried for treason. It had nothing to do with the uh, incident involving Alexander Hamilton. Burr was acquitted in a treason trial that involved a plot to create a European government-dominated nation in new territory being annexed by the United States. Jim Kaplan picks up the story. The prosecution presented testimony from James Wilkinson, his co-conspirator, so it was uh, who had turned state's evidence against him. Wilkinson, in fact, provided a letter allegedly written by Burr in which he outlined the plan to assemble the force to move against New Orleans and the, uh, the western states. Now, Burr's lawyers, who included the two uh, attorney generals of the United States, Edmund Randolph among them, argued that the definition of treason in the U.S. Constitution was quite narrow and included a requirement that the prosecution show two overt acts in furtherance of the scheme. And there was a question of whether uh, uh, it was uh, free speech. Much to the chagrin of Jefferson, who was said closely to follow the trial, Justice Marshall adopted the defense's narrow interpretation of the charge and ruled that without evidence that Burr had actually been present at Blennerson Island at the exact time of the incitement of the force that gathered there, the crime of treason had not been proved. We also have a highlight from a later episode that Jim Kaplan also was the the main guest on. It uh, was first on the internet June 25th of 2021, episode 376, talking about black separatist leader Marcus Garvey. This is Jim Kaplan. I'm a lawyer, a former walking tour guide and writer for the History Almanac. And today I'm going to talk about Marcus Garvey. I became interested in Garvey when... I used to do walking tours of Harlem. Fascinating story. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Our New York City area correspondent, Jim Kaplan, is here with, as he said, a story about Marcus Garvey and Garvey's role in African independence. Where did the movement for independence for Africa Uh, from the colonial powers, uh, begin. Uh, There was a recent uh, excellent PBS special on Africa, which implied that modern African independence had its origin in a number of ancient African kingdoms, and uh, particularly in uh, Ethiopia, which was never subject to uh, European colonialism. With all due respect, I have a different view. 
I believe that African independence in the 20th century, which is one of the great events in world history, actually began in the United States at 120 West 138th Street in New York City in Harlem. This was the headquarters of Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association. Ah. And I'm going to argue today that I think that was really the origin of the movement to free African from colonial domination. Well, tell us who was Marcus Garvey. Marcus Garvey was a Jamaican-born printer who, as a young man, had traveled through the Caribbean and became keenly aware of the, the severe discrimination against blacks, particularly dark-skinned blacks. Uh, he, he was born and grew up in Jamaica, where he led a printer's strike, but he then traveled to the Caribbean and saw that blacks were discriminated against throughout the Caribbean, and he later moved to London, which he thought was the center of the British Empire, where he met several black nationalists seeking to end white European colonial domination of Africa. It was at a library in London that he read and was greatly inspired by Booker T. Washington's Up From Slavery, in which Booker T. Washington, the great American black leader, was the founder of the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, urged that blacks should pull themselves up and establish black institutions by themselves before confronting whites or seeking equal rights through integration. During May on the Historian's Podcast, we had three episodes that focused on the American Revolution. Here's number one. My name is Jack Kelly. I'm the author of a new book about the Revolutionary War called Valcour, the 1776 Campaign that saved the cause of liberty. And it has to do with the somewhat unknown but uh, really crucial battle on Lake Champlain in northern New York in which uh, Benedict Arnold stood up to the Royal Navy and really thwarted a British invasion that year that could have spelled the end of the revolution if it had succeeded. Five years ago, I interviewed Jack Kelly about an earlier book he had written about the Revolutionary War, but then Jack moved on to write books about the impact of the Erie Canal, the Gilded Age, and other topics, but has returned uh, to the Revolutionary War. I asked him why he returned to that war in his new book, Valcour, the 1776 campaign that saved the cause of liberty. It's really just been an abiding interest in, of mine to look into aspects of the war and try to, uh, I've always tried to, to make the war as real as possible to, to readers, you know, to get across that this was not just dry history, but this was, you know, real violence, real uh, hardship for the soldiers. Take it as much as possible from the perspective of the actual fighting men. You know, it's something I've tried to do over the years, and I'm just coming back to it now, and I've been very happy with the, doing the research and uh, putting the story together. That's author Jack Kelly. Moving on to episode 370 that debuted May 14th on the Historian's Podcast, Hudson Valley historian A.J. Schenkman told stories from his book, Patriots and Spies in Revolutionary New York, including a plot to kidnap General George Washington, organized by a Tory or loyalist named Ettrick, 
during the time when Washington's headquarters was in Newburgh, New York. We're not sure if it's true. I've never been able to find anything about it in Washington's papers. Um, It's more often in the commander-in-chief's guard history written in the 1880s. It's in Rutenberg's history of Newburgh, and a lot of stories keep getting recirculated. And that would be the Tory Etrick, and he lived a short distance from uh, Washington's headquarters in Newburgh. Uh, it's the longest um, continuous headquarters of Washington's of the entire war. Um, he was there from about April 1st, 1782, until August uh, 1783. And uh, the Tory Etrick uh, was um, looking to uh, kidnap uh, Washington, and he invites him to uh, dinner. And the Tories' uh, daughter, who's a patriot, and it shows how families could be divided. She went and she warned General Washington, and he kept his um, he kept his appointment. And what he did is uh, during dinner, he had his commander in chief's guard surround uh, Ettrick's house. So in the middle of the uh, dinner, you know, the Tory stands up because he thought those were his men surrounding to arrest Washington. And he said, uh, I regret to inform you, Your Excellency, but you are my prisoner. And supposedly Washington never really even stopped eating. He never even looked at the guy. And he just said, you know, quite really? the contrary, I believe you're my prisoner. And when the Tory looked outside, he saw, oh, my God, this is the commander-in-chief's guard. And, um, and he was going to execute. He was going to execute the Tory and, or have him executed. And the uh, the Tory's daughter said, please, no, don't, you know, I would never have told you this is my father. You can't kill him. They both exiled uh, to New York City, which was still in the hands of the uh, British. That's A.J. Shankman, author of the book Patriots and Spies in Revolutionary New York. On May 21st, we debuted episode 371, our third episode about the American Revolutionary War, The guest was Beavis Longstreth, author of Chains Across the River, a historical novel dealing with the great chains that American forces stretched across the Hudson River near West Point during the American Revolution to prevent the British fleet from sailing from New York City to Albany. Beavis Longstreth is author of Chains Across the River, a historical novel dealing with the great chains that American forces stretched across the Hudson River in the American Revolution to prevent the British fleet from sailing up the river from New York City to Albany, dividing the colonies between New England and the rest. The creator of the chains was Thomas Macon, a native of England who lived in the Mohawk Valley after the war. A little knowledge is a dangerous thing, Beavis, and I thought I knew the basic gist of Thomas Macon's early real-life story. But you found in your research that Macon was not an early rebel, as he was said to have been, uh, helping throw the tea into Boston Harbor, for example. But you found a different narrative. Who was Thomas Macon, and what is the real story? The narrative that you're talking about all comes from Thomas Macon himself. Uh, Historians have undercovered information about him which solidly places him 
in different circumstances entirely. And they're far more convincing, putting aside Macon being the source of his information, which ought to be reliable, but people lie. And one of the interesting things about the book I wrote is, is to try to figure out why he was lying through his whole life. Because I accept the facts that uh, were uncovered by his historians, which show him joining the British Army's Regiment of Foot, shipping out to the United States in 1775, and then in July of that year, deserting. Desertion is well documented by a newspaper printed at the time and by accounts of two soldiers on General Gage's staff. Hi, I'm Asia Radin. I'm the author of The Truth About Lies, The Illusion of Honesty, and The Evolution of Deceit. Sort of a micro-history of con artistry, but what it really is is a history of deception in the sense that each chapter is about a different fundamental con, like a pyramid scheme or a bait-and-switch or snake oil, and how it works on your mind, on your brain, on your body, on society. In her book, Asia Radin tells the story of Gregor McGregor, a bankrupt Scottish aristocrat who made up a story about a country in South America that he supposedly won in a card game. So Gregor McGregor was sort of a soldier of fortune, and he was from Scotland, and he went to South America. And this was around 1810, 1811. By the 1820s, he was done with it, because, you know, like a lot of uh, tapped-out aristocracy, he had a big name, but he had no money, and he thought he would go to South America and make a fortune, or find a fortune, or steal a fortune. And when he came back, it seemed he had done that, because he came back, the cazique of Poyais, the sort of the prince of Poyais, and he had, he had some dressed-up locals with him, he had botanical samples, he had a book someone had written about the country of Poyais, called Captain Strangeways, the author. In the end, he was Captain Strangeways. He wrote the book himself. But he also had a document that said he owned the country now because, <laughs> though it's, it's not terribly respectable, he had gotten the local potentate blind drunk and swindled it away from him, and the man had signed it over. And with his new country, this tropical paradise in South America, he was looking for colonists. And... People believed him because, like I said earlier, the problem with a big lie is that it works in tandem with a functioning sense of reality. It's actually more likely you'll believe someone if you told them you have an island than if you tell them you have a boat. Because if you told me you had a boat, I might question that. <laughs> maybe he does. Maybe he's bragging. Maybe he's trying to impress me. I don't know. But if you said you had an island, I would assume you wouldn't say that out loud in front of people or on the radio if it weren't true because... That's something people could easily find out. My name is Julia Swig. The title of the book is Lady Bird Johnson Hiding in Plain Sight. The book covers Lady Bird Johnson's years in the White House primarily. It's bookended by two assassinations and is based upon the vast amount of material that she left behind through her recorded audio diaries and documentation in American archives. Julia Swig has received a lot of attention for her new book about Lady Bird Johnson and Lady Bird's Tapes, a recorded diary that the former First Lady made uh, starting in 1963. 
Where are these audio tapes and transcripts stored? The material was created by Lady Bird Johnson herself while she was in the White House. I like to think of her as the first White House podcaster because she recorded an audio diary using reel-to-reel tape, starting with her description of her experience on November 22nd, 1963 in Dallas Mm -hmm. of the JFK assassination and going all the way through January 1969, the aftermath of Richard Nixon's inauguration and the two LBJs, Lady Bird and Lyndon's, return to the ranch in Texas. The material itself is housed at the LBJ Library in Austin, Texas, both the audio and the transcript. And to answer your question, I am not the first scholar to draw from this material, but I think I am the first scholar to draw so heavily from the full unredacted scope of it. It's 123 hours of audio, 1,750,000 words. And so, and, and that material had not been fully released to the public until between 2013 and 2016 or 17, which tracks with the period of my work and writing. The episode that debuted on June 4th, number 373, was with Marguerite Kearns, who's author of the book Unfinished Revolution, Edna Buckman Kearns and the Struggle for Women's Rights. Marguerite's grandparents were peace and suffrage activists at the turn of the 20th century in New York City and Long Island. Marguerite's grandmother, Edna Buckman Kearns, died young. Did she die before you were born? Absolutely. And that was the fascination about uh, learning about who she was. And my grandfather was there. He was involved in the movement, both the suffrage movement, voting rights, and peace. And he's the one that really told me the stories from his point of view. And I wanted to know a lot about my grandmother. And he was there to tell me. I was 10 years old. I couldn't understand why there was no photos in the the home where I was raised. I found out later it took me a long time to figure it out, but it was right in front of my face. They hadn't processed the grief of her death in 1934, and they loved her. They adored her, but the Great Depression came along, and the Second World War, and all kinds of other things took priority. So uh, here I was, a little girl, and... I had no idea that it was going to take so long to publish uh, what I found out. And there's many things that I looked at. It's it's a hybrid memoir, so it has photos and diaries and stories and legends and secrets and scandals. (laughs) And, of course, I think the most important thing is what was the impact on generations in my family. And there were four generations that really took the story to heart in one way or another, and they became activists. Maybe they weren't voting rights or peace activists, but I think all of us are asking the question, why am I the way I am? And we all have stories to tell. I'm Linda Wisniewski. Happy to be here on the podcast. I've been writing most of my life. And I started when I won a loaf of bread in an essay contest at St. Stan's Elementary School in Amsterdam. I wrote an essay about bread. And I got a loaf amongst bread. And since then, I've got a few other awards, including first prizes and contests from the Wild River Review 
the Story Circle Network, and a Pushcart Prize nomination. My first book was a memoir about growing up in Amsterdam called Off Kilter. And the book that I'm going to be talking about today is Where the Stork Flies. It's a fictionalized memoir told still in the first person, but it is totally fiction. And it is narrated by Kat, a Pennsylvania librarian, who finds a lost time traveler in her kitchen. When she tries to help the woman find her way back home, they discover that the Black Madonna of Chenstahova has other plans for them both. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Linda Kulik-Wisniewski is the author, as she told us, of Where the Stork Flies, a time travel novel about a Pennsylvania librarian whose search for her best life pushes away her family until her 19th century ancestor and the medieval queen Jadwiga teach her the meaning of unconditional love. There are several scenes in Linda's actual hometown of Amsterdam, New York, in the present day in the novel, as well as scenes from Poland in 1825. As did Linda, I grew up on Reed Hill in Amsterdam, New York, at the time of of our bringing up, a largely Polish-American neighborhood. Where did you go in Poland to research this book? Well, it was a double mission. Um, my husband and I are both of Polish heritage, and we always wanted to go there and see what it was like. So we took advantage of a Rhodes Scholar trip. This is a group for people over 55, and they take you on educational trips all over the world. So they took us all over Poland. We started in Warsaw. We went up to Gdansk, um, where they had the um, Solidarity Movement. We went to Krakow, which is a very, very historic um, city with medieval origins. And we traveled uh, south to the Tatra Mountains, which is where where the stork flies takes place. That is now known as Galicia, as it was then. That's Linda Wisniewski, author of Where the Stork Flies. Our episode that first was on the internet June 18th, number 375, was with Mark Sullivan. He's a rather uh, high-powered author, and he discussed his historical novel, The Last Green Valley, that chronicles how members of a German family named Martell, living in Ukraine at the end of World War II, were able to escape the oncoming Russian army with support from a retreating Nazi army and the Martell's found a new life in America. What was the history of the Martell family? We need to understand that the Martells were ethnic Germans whose ancestors had been given land in Ukraine by Catherine the Great, and they had emigrated there because they were very good at growing grain, primarily wheat. And Catherine the Great needed uh, wheat farmers because the serfs of Ukraine at the time were not capable of bringing in big harvests. So they got land and they got um, 30 years free of taxation in return for coming and and working. And they formed these German colonies that people lived in, you know, for multiple generations, including the Martell family. And um, life is pretty good for them. You know, the the ground is fertile. They have a very good life as, as farmers and 
um, all the way until the Bolshevik Revolution and the rise of Stalinism, in which case the Martels, like many ethnic Germans, were thrown off their lands, uh, starved to death, persecuted, sent to gulags, some of whom never came back, sent to gulags, some of whom came home with totally broken people. Their life is horrible under Stalin. Mm -hmm. And then Hitler comes and he first thing he does after he invades in June of 1941 is uh, he starts offering them their land back. And the Martels certainly want their land back. And they go back to this you know existence that they were thrown out of. And um, they have about 18 months where their life is relatively good. Unfortunately, the Germans aren't there just to let them grow weak, but to um, to start the final solution. And at the same time that they're back on the farm, uh, the Einsatzgruppen is beginning to murder Jews across Ukraine. And um, then Stalin counterattacks, and uh, he wins at Stalingrad, and then he wins at the Dnieper River. And he gets enough of... Hitler's armies uh, destroyed or weakened that the Wehrmacht is in retreat at the beginning of the book. That's Mark Sullivan, author of The Last Green Valley. On July 16th, we debuted episode 379, an update on a previous program on the origins of the New York State Thruway from Tim Thielman of the Campaign for Greater Buffalo History, Architecture, and Culture. What is the Campaign for Greater Buffalo, Tim? We're a non-for-profit. We existed for 20 years, and we're kind of a successor organization to a, a, another historic preservation group. But uh, we, uh, our membership has been responsible for saving H.H. Richardson's Buffalo Psychiatric Center, um, I personally was one of the founding members of the Central Terminal Restoration Corporation, which uh, seeks to restore our fabulous Art Deco uh, train station. Um, we were instrumental in, uh, in getting funding for Frank Lloyd Wright's Martin House restoration, mm -hmm. and we've created, uh, you know, literally landmarked thousands of um, structures through historic districts or individually. And we uh, were absolutely instrumental in preserving uh, the terminus of the Erie Canal in downtown Buffalo and reestablishing our canal district. And we're continuing uh, to work on that with proposals for removing uh, highways in downtown Buffalo and reestablishing the original street network as uh, laid out by our founder, uh, Joseph Ellicott. So... But we recognize that the battle for historic preservation um, has to be much broader, not just saving buildings as well. This, this is an interesting piece of history or it's a beautiful piece of architecture. But we mm -hmm. have to create the environment which allowed these buildings to be built in the first place um, to enable them to survive. And um, the only way to do that is to really focus on regenerating the, the core central cities, the square mile of the core in Buffalo, the square mile of the core in Rochester, in Syracuse, and so on down the line. That's Tim Thielman of Buffalo. 
Our episode that debuted July 19th, number 378, was about Anne Maria Bullock Scram, a native of Ephrata, a resident of Amsterdam, who was a volunteer nurse in the American Civil War. Montgomery County historian Kelly Yakabuchi Farquhar discusses her research on Scram. I have a lot of respect for her. She faced a lot of adversity, and, you know, being, being um, near the front lines of battle must have been mind-shattering. You know, just the, the horrors that she probably saw and, and what she had to do just to provide, you know, some level of comfort for these men that, that she didn't know. You know, maybe maybe she knew some of them because maybe some of them had served with her husband. Um, you know, had been from Amsterdam. But you know, it that just takes a lot of resolve, I, I think. And then when, you know, just everything that she went through afterward. This has been a highlights edition of the Historians Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.